You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. That's a great song, isn't it? I, I don't think I had heard that before this year, but it's uh, like all the Christmas songs. It's got such just rich theological truth in it, doesn't it? God in flesh and blood. That's, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. I don't know about you, but I love this time of year. I love uh, the songs, the food. We even had snow this week. Um, ice, I guess, maybe is more, more like it around here. But I think one of my favorite things about Christmas is the traditions, the repetition, the rhythms, doing the same thing over and over. And uh, I know that there are things that can weigh us down, and um, I'm, I also can get kind of bogged down by the busyness of the season and the commercialism and all that. But if I can get past that at some, in some ways, um, Christmas gets more exciting and more joyful, at least for me, every year. I don't know if it's kind of nostalgia as I get older or because my kids are growing up, but I think the reason... Christmas and celebrating Christmas doesn't get old is because the story itself, the story of Christmas, doesn't get old. As simple as it is in some ways, we can't ever get tired of thinking about the story of Christmas. And that's because the story of Christmas is really the story of the gospel. It's the story of the good news of Jesus. Celebrating Christmas is worshiping him for what he's done, worshiping Jesus our Savior, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning in our passage. Uh, we're going to continue looking in, in the first chapter of Math, Matthew, picking up where Jay left off last week. Um, and we're going to talk about some things that are really basic, simple truths of Christmas and of the gospel. We've been focusing on the hope of Christmas this Advent season at Grace. And this morning we're going to look at um, this last part of chapter 1 in Matthew and think about the great hope we have in Jesus, our Savior. Jesus' salvation is at the heart of Christmas. So let's just go ahead and jump in and read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and reading all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 25. This is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And it says, all, that, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and it's, 
it's so simple in some ways, but so profound and so powerful. We pray that you would work mightily through it this morning in our hearts. Uh, Help us to see you more clearly, to have our hope and worship for you stirred uh, because of who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you remember, the first part of chapter 1 and Matthew J walked us through that part and showed how Jesus' lineage goes all the way back to Genesis and to Abraham. Um, that kind of was the, the wide-angle perspective on, on Jesus' birth. And here in this passage, it narrows the focus, and we're going to look at a more detailed account of the different things that were going on with Mary, with Joseph, with Jesus' birth. Um, Matthew's going to give some of the details around the birth of this Messiah, this, this son of David. Verse 18, it says that Mary is pledged to be married. They're, they're engaged, Mary and Joseph. And for them, that would have been different than it is for us today. Today, when you get engaged, it means you've, you've gotten a ring, you've proposed, she said yes, and now you're planning a wedding. For them, I don't know exactly what it meant. I don't know if Joseph had saved up three months of carpentry wages and bought Mary this ring and planned an elaborate proposal and uh, surprised her with it and took selfies and posted them on Facebook. I don't, I, I don't know what they did exactly, but one way or another, they're engaged. They're pledged to be married. And what was different for them was that in order to break off this engagement, in order to break this pledge, you'd have to go through official channels and file uh, official paperwork. It would be considered getting a divorce in order to break off an engagement. Very different than what it is for us today. So they're officially pledged to be married. They're kind of in this waiting period. It's official, but it's not actual marriage yet. And Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. A bit of a problem. We'll talk a bit more later about what this means, that her pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit. But what Joseph knows at this point is that somehow she's pregnant, and he knows that he's not the dad. He's not a doctor or a scientist, but he does understand how things work, and by all common, natural sense, it looks like she's been unfaithful to him in some way. And so, he plans to go forward and break off this engagement and get a divorce. This apparently scandalous situation, it really could have led to some some serious public disgrace for Mary. Um, it would have probably meant some sort of a trial. And this is all under, under Jewish law. Um, there could have been some sort of punishment. It could have even meant she would be punished by death. And Joseph knew this. And he knew that as the husband in this situation, or the official fiancé, whatever you call it, uh, he would be well within his rights to just divorce her, let her fend for herself, let her deal with all, of the, all the public disgrace and punishment. That was not his problem. But it says that he's a, just, he's a, faithful, a man who's faithful to the law. He's just, and he's also kind. He cares about Mary. And he doesn't want her to have to go through this harm to her reputation. So he's going to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly. And that's a, that's a big deal. He doesn't have to do that. He's going to, whatever it is, file the paperwork secretly. Do whatever he can to help her kind of go under the radar of the, the local gossips in the area. So this is what his plan is. He's going to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly. Um, and he's decided, he's decided to go ahead and go forward with this. And once he's made that decision, it says that an angel 
appeared to him, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is really an amazing thing in and of itself. I mean, God is clearly doing something special here. Really, this is one of several times in Matthew where God shows up and communicates to Joseph through a dream or through an angel. Um, It happens over and over in these first couple chapters of of Matthew. Um, And this fact alone that God is showing up and communicating with Joseph through dreams and angels, this is miraculous. But what the angel says to Joseph, what we read next, that's really what's the most amazing thing about this. Uh, There's a lot of things that are truly astonishing. The first thing we see is that he addresses Joseph as the son of David. Um, Just just kind of a short statement, but this is a big deal. It ties this whole story in with the genealogy in the first part of the chapter and shows how Joseph is going to play a key role in the birth of God's promised Messiah, this king who who was expected to come from the line of David. And then the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. Now, think about the implications of this for Joseph. Think about what this means. He's concerned about Mary's reputation. He cares about her. But if you think about it, it, he's probably nervous about his own reputation too. To be associated with her and to go, go forward with this marriage would have implications on his own reputation. I mean, what's he going to say to his friends and neighbors who are wondering what's going on? They come up to him at synagogue and they're, they're like, Joseph, what's, what's going on? Are you still with that adulteress? Are you going to go forward with this? I mean, do you think they're going to believe him or understand when he says, oh yeah, she's pregnant, but it's, it's fine, she's a virgin, no big deal. And it's, the conception is by the Holy Spirit, so don't worry about it. Everything is good. You think they're going to buy that? I don't know. I don't know about you, but if I heard someone try to make that claim, I'm not sure I would believe it. He knows that if he goes forward with this, with this marriage, it's taking a significant risk. Um, And he's bearing the burden that Mary bears. But he obeys God. It says later in in the passage, and we read this in verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. This is remarkable. Joseph's obedience is a great example for us. As far as we know, the angel didn't give any details about how this was all going to work out. He just simply said, don't, don't be afraid. Go forward with it. And Joseph obeys knowing that it means he's taking on some burden on himself, some potential harm for his reputation. This is a poignant example for us today. He's taking a big risk because of his love and devotion to Mary, but also because it's an act of faithful obedience to God and trust in God. This will result in difficult circumstances. It's not only going to mean he takes on some of the public disgrace that Mary was bearing, but it also means that he's going to have to uh, take his family and flee to Egypt and really, in a lot of ways, live his life on the run for the first few years of Jesus' life. There's serious implications here. But the amazing thing is that at each point along the way, God sends his angelic messengers to warn him, to protect him and to guide him and his little family. God cares for him. And when Joseph steps out and obeys God and takes him at his word, God goes with him 
and works in and through him in mighty, powerful, miraculous ways. As an example for us, I think this is, this is something to really think about. We face uncertain situations too, don't we? Situations where if we're going to obey God and do what we know he's called us to do, it means we're taking some sort of a significant risk. It might mean you're risking ridicule at work if you do your job with integrity. Maybe people will say, you don't have to do that. You don't have to tell the truth on that document. Just, you know, everyone does it. Don't, don't worry about it. Or it might mean taking a financial risk in order to be generous in your giving in some way. Or maybe it means putting yourself out there, going out of your comfort zone, doing something that isn't in your sweet spot, that's really hard for you because you believe it's something that God has called you to. But we can be confident that even in those situations, God is faithful. Even if we don't know how things will work out, and even if there are consequences, like Joseph, we can take God at his word And we can trust him and obey him because he's good and he's mighty and he's with us. This is the example we see in Joseph and his obedience. And really it says a lot about Joseph, but it says even more about God and his faithfulness. So it says this baby that's conceived inside of Mary is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now on one level, this would just be kind of a... If if Joseph is going to take... The angel at his word, this would relieve some of his fears about Mary's unfaithfulness. Um, it would tell him that, okay, there's not another human father in the picture. Now, whether he understood what that meant exactly or not, at least it would alleviate that fear. But on another level, what this tells us is that God is doing an amazing, miraculous work here. There's something totally unusual going on in this situation. We don't know exactly what it means from a biological standpoint that a baby or a pregnancy can be from the Holy Spirit. Um, And I don't think we're supposed to fully get our minds around that. It's one of those mysterious, kind of shocking statements in the Bible that we're supposed to just read and just, just say, wait a minute, conceived by the Holy Spirit? There's no elaboration or explanation of how something like that could happen. But I don't think we're supposed to understand it as much as we're supposed to just stop and think about it, and marvel at the wonder of that reality. The important thing, the truly astonishing thing to get from this, from this statement is that this pregnancy, this situation that's happening, it's, it's a pregnancy that's from God himself. This baby in Mary's womb is something that God has done. That's the amazing thing about it. And really, if we continue to think about it, there are several more details to ponder that that as we think about it, I don't think we can help but stop and worship God for who he is and what he has done for us, what he was doing for us in this amazing moment in history that we celebrate at Christmas. First, there's just this simple but profound truth that the, the virgin will become pregnant. Now, pregnancy in itself is amazing. I don't know uh, about you, but I'll never forget the different phases of the pregnancy of my four kids, um, of my wife with our four kids. The first time that I felt them kick in the womb, I can't get that out of my head. But this situation, it's amazing because it's pregnancy, and all pregnancy is amazing. It's a miracle from God. But this is a pregnant virgin. How in the world can something like that happen? It's never happened before, 
As far as I know, it's never going to happen again. This is a totally unprecedented, miraculous act of God that we're, we're seeing here. And I think sometimes we think about the, the pregnant virgin um, and we just kind of go over it and think, oh yeah, that's part of the Christmas story. But really, let that sink in. I mean, that's, that's amazing. There's a lot of things that God is doing here that are amazing. The next thing to think about is the, the providence of God that we see in the fulfillment of prophecy. Here in verse 22, it says that this whole thing fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And this is just one of many times in Jesus' birth, in his early life, and really all throughout his life, that details of his life are fulfillment, specific, exact fulfillment from Old Testament prophecy. Without a doubt, God is proving himself over and over to be perfectly faithful to his promises. And he's intervening in history in wonderful, providential, miraculous ways. Another thing to notice is that the prophecy of Isaiah goes on to say that this baby inside the Virgin Mary is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Next Sunday, Gary is going to talk about this in in detail and really kind of unpack what it means that God is with us, what this statement about Emmanuel means. But it is, this is what we celebrate at, at Christmas time, at Advent. The Advent is the coming or the arrival of God himself to be with us. The God of the universe, the creator of heavens and earth, whose throne is heaven and whose footstool is the earth, who measures the waters in the hollow of his hands and gathers the wind in his fists, the one of whom it says heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. This God is a tiny unborn baby, a fetus, curled up inside the womb of the young Virgin Mary. This is amazing. It's it's an astonishing reality that we celebrate at Christmas. This is why the Christmas story is so simple, and yet it's it's completely extraordinary. Angelic appearances, fulfillment of prophecy, a pregnant virgin, conception by the Holy Spirit, God incarnate, in flesh, with us, in the womb of a a virgin girl. If I slow down and really think about this, really just let this sink in, I can't help but be struck with just a great sense of awe and worship for who God is and what he's done. This is the astounding good news, the gospel of Christmas. God has done a unique and powerful, miraculous thing. And the reason he's done it, the reason it says here is that he's done it in order to save us. This is what the angel in Joseph's dream says. It says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, this name, Jesus, uh, was a pretty common name. There probably a lot of little Jewish boys running around with the name Jesus. But what's significant here is that what it means. Um, Jesus is the English kind of Latinized way that we pronounce the Greek name, Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, Yeshua, or Yehoshua, which we say Joshua, um, which is a great name, by the way. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, <laughs> And this name, all of these, Jesus, Jesus, Yehoshua, 
Joshua, it means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. Jesus came at Christmas to fulfill the meaning of his name, of his name Jesus. He came to save us. This is the reason why celebrating Christmas is celebrating the gospel. And that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about for the rest of this time this morning. What it means that Jesus is our Savior. And about the great hope that we have in his salvation. And why we celebrate that at Christmas. Salvation is a concept that we talk about in our contemporary language all the time. Salvation or saving or safety. Um, We talk about saving money for retirement. We talk about baseball players who are safe when they reach the base, or a lifesaver. It's either a ring that you throw into the ocean when someone falls overboard, or a ring-shaped breath mint. I did a Google search for saving lives, just just for fun, and there's all sorts of results that are generated. Everything from an organization that fights against texting and driving, seeks to save lives, all the way to an an ad for a delicious, all-natural, non-GMO snack bar. (laughs) There's there's actually a snack bar that's called This Bar Saves Lives. Um, They they do give a packet of food to a child in need for every bar that they sell, so they're not claiming that the nutritional value is is life-saving itself. But uh, the point is, there are many different ways that we talk about saving someone or saving something um, in our contemporary language. And in each situation, if you think about it, notice that whenever we talk about saving, we're talking about some sort of harm or danger that we're being saved from. So you save your money uh, in a retirement fund to keep it, to save it from being spent or being lost. A baseball player is safe from being tagged out. Uh, A lifesaver saves you from either drowning or from bad breath. And in the Bible, it's, it's similar. There's a lot of biblical examples of this saving language, too. And it, means, it always means being saved from something. Uh, it talks about Noah and his family being saved from the flood. Or when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, it says the Lord saved them from the hands of the Egyptians. All through the Bible, and especially in Psalms, it talks about God saving his, his people, saving the righteous and delivering them from their enemies. And then in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus... Uh, when he heals people, it uses saving language. He saves them from their disease or from demon possession. And also in the Gospels, the disciples cry out to Jesus to save, him, save them from the stormy sea. A lot of different ways salvation is used in the Bible. And in some of these situations, like these examples, it has to do with being saved from some sort of physical harm or some sort of human enemy. But really... What's at the heart of the biblical theme of salvation is being saved from your sins. This is exactly what we read in our passage, what the angel says to Joseph. He says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Salvation, the biblical concept of salvation, involves being saved from some kind of harm or danger. And the greatest harm, our ultimate enemy, the danger from which we most desperately need to be rescued is sin. Christmas is joyous. We celebrate. And the gospel is happy news. But it's good news. It's happy news because of what we've been saved from. It's no fun to dwell on sin. But I think if we don't at least give a little bit of time to thinking about it, we won't really truly appreciate what it is we've been saved from. 
to praise the Savior and to truly celebrate Christmas, we must grasp the magnitude of the sin that we've been saved from. That's part of celebrating. It's understanding what we've been saved from. The scope of sin and the effects of sin, they're universal. They reach all parts of creation and all parts of humanity. This is why Jesus' birth as Savior is set within this context of a genealogy that goes all the way back to Genesis. It's part of the whole story. In fact, it seems like Matthew has gone to some extra effort, to some extra lengths to show us and to remind us, remind his readers, of the way that Jesus fulfills a hope that stretches all the way back to the very beginning of the gospel story. This is the kind of thing that I find really exciting, and so let's get technical here just for a minute. This is what Gary would say. We're going to geek out for a bit. It's just going to be short, and I think it's really, if you bear with me, it's really a a pretty amazing thing, I think. Uh, There's this word, or really a group of words, closely related words, that are repeated almost 50 times just in Matthew chapter 1 by itself. They're actually 47 times. The word for genealogy in verse 1 where it says this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, that word is genesis in Greek. Sound kind of familiar? Uh, It's basically the same word as what we say genesis, the first book of the Bible. And this is the exact same word also in our passage in verse 18, where it says this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. We could say this is how the genesis of Jesus the Messiah came about. It's the same word. And it's a closely related word from the same root that we see over and over in the genealogy itself, where it says, so-and-so fathered, or was the father of so-and-so. Really, to kind of capture the idea of the Greek word there, we could say, so-and-so generated so-and-so. It's another one of those gen words closely related to the word for genealogy in Genesis. And this is also the same verb that we see in verse 20, where it says, where the angel says to Joseph, the baby that is conceived or generated in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And then one other word that's very closely connected in this same really narrow group, the three sets of 14 generations in verse 17, from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus, that word for generations, as the English word picks up, is is a very closely related word. So all these Genesis words, Genesis itself, generations, genealogy, um, generated, uh, these, these all, I think, are intentional. Matthew is trying to do something here. He's trying to show us how this all fits together. I don't know about you, but this is, this is the kind of stuff I get excited about. I know I'm kind of nerdy in that way. Um, <clears throat> but I get excited about it not just because of what it shows us about the rich unity of Scripture, but even more than that, I get excited about it especially because of what it says about God about what he was doing when he sent his son to save us and to fulfill the hope of all of human history all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis, God created this place that was set up for perfect relationship with his people. And that only lasted two chapters as we we read in Genesis. The curse of sin entered the picture and it spread immediately through all of creation and all of humanity. The effects of sin are universal. There's nothing in creation that it doesn't affect. Culture, governments, health, relationships, everything is impacted by sin. It's damaged. We've all experienced that 
the results of that damage and that curse. I know some of you probably feel this very acutely right now. I'm sure it's not hard to convince you that sin has effects that impact us today. Maybe even especially during the Christmas season where you're just trying to get through from day to day, trying to get to December 26th, get past all this, survive, let alone get through this season with any kind of joy or Christmas cheer. Maybe you're just overwhelmed with financial burdens or broken relationships or whatever it is. You look out at the world around you and it just seems like everything's falling apart. Maybe you're in your health, you're battling some sort of chronic sickness and it's just every day you're faced with the reality of the curse of sin. A couple weeks ago we got a package in the mail. Um, It's from a woman whose husband is battling cancer um, and it's, it's probably a losing battle. I mean, God, God is powerful and he can work miracles, but most likely uh, he's not going to get through this battle with cancer. And this package had some of their Christmas ornaments in it. They're giving away all their decorations because with the pain of life right now for them, Christmas just isn't that celebratory. It's so sad the curse of sin, it impacts us all in different ways. And the effects, they can be heartbreaking. I know if I think about this, if I think about this woman, if I think about, if I just read the news and read an article about sex trafficking or things that are going on in Syria or whatever it is, um, or if I think about the sin in my own heart, in my own struggles, it's, I get discouraged, I get down. Ask my wife. She knows. But this is why Jesus came. He came to overcome this. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. At that very moment in history, he came to save us from all of that junk, all of that curse. This is why there's great joy and great hope at Christmas in spite of everything that we see around us in our world and in our hearts. Now, let me just clarify. I don't want you to hear me hear something hear me saying something that I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that to rejoice in Christmas means to just ignore whatever pain or struggle you're going through. That's not what I'm saying. Christmas is about the gospel and the gospel is truly good news, but celebrating the gospel, worshiping Jesus for what he's done for us, that doesn't mean being inauthentic about your pain doesn't mean just pretending it doesn't exist. Grief can coexist right alongside joy. In fact, I think in a real sense, joy and sadness will always go hand in hand in this life. The good news of Christmas is about finding hope in Jesus in the midst of pain, in spite of sin, and in spite of the curse and brokenness of the world. We rejoice that he came to save us from those things. That's what's amazing about Christmas. That's why it's so joyful and profound. One of the reasons I love the classic Christmas carols is because they capture this idea, I think, really well. A lot of them do. Uh, let's just read some of the, the words of some of the, the classic Christmas carols. I'm not going to sing them for you, just so you know. You're welcome. Uh, but joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And then, O Holy Night, which is one of my favorites, which I definitely won't try to sing. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. These Christmas carols, they're not just nice traditional songs. They're, they're praise songs. At least these ones are, not, you know, Jingle Bell Rock or whatever. But uh, these, these classic Christmas carols, they're worship hymns. And the reason they're so joyous, the reason for this thrill of hope is because God has come to us in the weariness of our world. The Savior's birth breaks gloriously into the darkness of a world that is lost and into our lives that themselves are broken and marred by this this sin and its curse. This is what gives me great joy, even in the midst of the sin that I see around me and the brokenness of the world and the sin that I know is in my own heart. This is where... my heart is stirred to worship the Lord and to rejoice in what he's done and to thank him for who he is, for his salvation. So Jesus' salvation reaches all of creation and it's also, at the same time, it's intimately personal. It's not just about the sin around us, it's about the sin inside of us. He saves us from the sin in the world and the sin in our own hearts. And this is what the gospel message is all about. The God of the universe came down to be with us. He took on flesh. He took up residence in the womb of Mary. And he took our sins upon himself. He was the innocent sacrifice offered in our place, on our behalf, as a substitute to save us from the wrath and punishment that we deserve for our sins. This is why he came, to be with us, to be one of us, and to die for us and save us. This is amazing. And like Tony said, if you're here this morning at Grace and you haven't come to the point where you recognize your need for Jesus, I would ask you, I'd plead with you, please just consider this good news, this wonderful news of Christmas. Jesus came as a baby, lived a sinless life, died on a cross and then rose again. And he did it to seek you, to save you from your sins because he loved you. And for followers of Jesus, for those of us who have come to recognize him and believe in him as our Savior, our response to this good news of Christmas is to worship him for what he's done, to praise him for sending his son to save us, and then to live lives of worship in the power of the gospel and in the, in the amazing eternal hope of the Savior's return one day. Salvation is about what we've been saved from, but it's also about what we've been saved to. Jesus' salvation isn't something that just happened in the past that we come to believe and then it's kind of a a past reality. It's something that has profound implications for life with him today in the present and also for our hope of a future with him in eternity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, The gospel that he preaches is the gospel by which we are being saved. Present tense reality. And then in 1 Peter, we're encouraged to grow up in our salvation. 
And Philippians instructs us to work out our salvation because it's God who is at work in us. It's an ongoing, present reality. Salvation is something that has happened, but it's also something that is currently happening. It's about what Jesus has done and about what he is doing in us and through us right now, today, in the present. This also, for me, I don't know about for you, but this brings just this, this sense of peace, this sense of hopefulness. That in spite of my failures, in spite of my weaknesses, God is still at work. His salvation is still present and new every morning. We all have our areas of sin, our little pockets that um, still weigh us down and hinder our relationship with others. And most importantly, they, they damage our relationship with the Lord and keep us from walking in true joy of relationship with him. But Jesus came and took on flesh for those very sins. And you know what those are. I know what mine are. I know what my issues are. He did this mighty, miraculous work to come and save us and pay the penalty for those sins so we don't have to. He did that on the cross. And that same powerful work that he did on the cross continues today, every day. That's the gospel. It continues as we fight to defeat the sin that he has already won the victory over. He's already defeated it. We live in the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit and we grow in righteousness in our ongoing salvation. Our hope is in Jesus' salvation and that salvation is real right now, today, this week, in the present and whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with. And then even more beautiful about salvation is that it extends into the future also. He saved us. He is saving us currently And he will save us. Salvation has future implications too. Romans 8 says this. It says that all creation is groaning, waiting to be freed from futility and corruption. We too are longing for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, it says. There is a future aspect of salvation. And this part of the gospel, this makes it even more glorious to talk about hoping in Christmas and hoping in what Jesus has done for us. First Peter also speaks of this, and we're going to end here with this. First Peter speaks of our living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We await an eternal inheritance, a future salvation. And then elsewhere in Romans it says, we're united with Jesus in his death for our sins, and we're united with him in his resurrection to newness of life now, and to eternal life with him in the future. This is why we can sing Christmas songs over and over. We can do these traditions and celebrate this over and over. This is why we don't get tired of celebrating Christmas and rehearsing over and over again the story of Jesus' birth. We rejoice that Jesus came to save us, and we long for his ultimate victory over sin and death in the future. This is the thrill of our hope in Jesus. Christmas anticipates eternity. Jesus' first coming looks ahead with eager anticipation to his second coming when he's going to rule and reign as king forever. Christmas is a joyful celebration because it's about the good news that Jesus has come to save us and we celebrate with great hope that he's coming again. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. 
For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.